You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. So, the Barbarossa, we say pig, but... Like we see with a lot of these pig species, they do vary in what they look like compared to what we think in a domestic pig. What can they teach us? Another popular story, but uh, definitely not true, is that a Barbarossa will use its tusks to hang from a tree to wait until a female Barbarossa comes trotting by. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. This will be a fun one. This is going to be a fun podcast. A lot of fun facts today. Yes, we're talking about the pig deer or the Barbarossa. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a super fun species in the pig family. And it just has these very dramatic curved tusks, which Chris and I are going to dork out about today because they're really fascinating from an evolutionary perspective and from a physiological perspective too as far as how they do what they do and I was lucky enough to see Barbarossa this past weekend when I was at Disney's Animal Kingdom and just being up and close and watching them root around and move around they're they're a beautiful pig I'm a huge lover of pigs I got to work with them a lot at the zoo when I was a zookeeper mama pigs and piglets and it's always fun on the podcast when we get to talk about a pig family member so and it's been a while right Oh, a long while. We did uh, episode 145, Warthog, but we're going to find out that there's only 17 species of pigs. So, uh, but there's a few more that we want to do. You know, when back in the day when I was working with your husband, John, with the Visayan warty pig, right, that they had there, we were doing some behavior studies. Yeah, at the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo. Yeah. They're really, they're really fun. They're busy. Those boys are always doing something uh, in their exhibits and, uh, and they're, very endangered as well. They're another Asiatic uh, species of pig that's in peril. So yeah, yeah. I was like, you've been wanting to do this for a while because you've been saying we need to do them. These are endangered yes. and they are very special. There is a lot of interesting physiology with these pigs. Well, and their evolution too. Mm-hmm. I mean, how they get on the islands. And so we're going to talk about if they're good swimmers. We're going to talk about how big their tusks are. They have some really fun behaviors from nesting to boxing. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But there's also a lot of cool facts that set them apart from other species of pigs that we mm-hmm. know and love. So yeah, I had a great week prepping for this podcast. I got to see them. I took some videos of them that we'll share on Instagram. So Barbarusa, it's going to be fun. Yeah, it's always fun when we do a podcast and you go and see the animal or like you got to see him before we recorded. I just I always get excited. I'm like, oh, yeah, we just covered that and all the behaviors and da 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 da. It's just fun. I have an amazing factoid that when we get to evolution that will blow people away. It's so fun. It just every every corner I went around with this, this species, I just was smiling and I couldn't wait to talk about it. So we're going to get going here in a second. Just really quick, thank you to our Patreon supporters. Angie and I are doing our monthly lives now. Uh, so for a cup of coffee a month, you know, you're supporting us and we're supporting every organization we cover. In the past, we we were doing one organization a month we sent money to, but now Angie and I are sending money to every organization uh, we, we cover because we, we talked about it. 
we just we really believe in what these people are doing out there around the world uh, on every continent out in the oceans so we're just sending what we can thanks to your donations on patreon so thank you very much for that uh, join us and look forward to our next live where you can come on and talk to angie and i and give us ideas on species just last week you know our good friend Chantel. It told us to cover the bandicoot, which we did. So uh, you can have your say on the future of where we go with the podcast. So thank you very much. Yes. Thank you, everyone. And I want to give a huge shout out to Mermaid91 and iRose20, who wrote wonderful reviews for us on iTunes. I really appreciate it. And it keeps Chris and I going. So if you haven't already, which I'm sure many of you haven't, just take a few minutes, go on iTunes, click five-star review and a few kind words to let us know that you're enjoying the podcast and and you can even recommend some species for Chris and I to cover. We we definitely take it into consideration when we're prepping each month. Yep, yep, yep. Well, so the Barbarossa, we say pig, but like we see with a lot of these pig species, they do vary in what they look like compared to what we think in a domestic pig. Definitely, Chris. I mean, the Barbarossa does have that rounded body, that that barrel-shaped belly that we're used to seeing in our domestic pigs. Uh, and they do have a pointed snout, but I think it's longer, much longer than our domestic pigs. And then they have long, thin legs compared to domestic pigs as well. Mm-hmm. And in some places, they were even considering them like deer legs, which I think they're not that thin and agile like deer legs, but they are they are more long and thin as compared to a domestic pig or like the Visayan uh, warty hog. Now, their color is going to depend on what species, and we're going to talk all about that when we get into taxonomy because it was fun. They used to think they were subspecies, Mm. but now they're pretty certain that there are actually different species of Barbarossa on the different islands in Indonesia. And so the most well-known species of Barbarossa is big, and its body color is is gray or brown-olive in color. And it's naked, which means it doesn't have much body hair as compared to some of the other species of Barbarossa. Because some of the other species of Barbarossa, like the golden Barbarossa, do have more hair. They're not hairy, like really hairy, but they do have more hair and it's a lighter color. I don't know if it's golden, but it's it's definitely, it can be golden or cream colored. And then other species can have more of a black coat uh, with a little bit more hair. But the most well-known, the Babarusa celebinus, which is the one that I saw at Disney's Animal Kingdom this uh, this past weekend, that's one that the, you can't even see any hair. It looks pretty naked. Yeah. And the skin has like large folds or almost like wrinkles on it, which is definitely different than a domestic pig who has very that have very taut skin. And then, of course, there's the tusks. Uh, mm-hmm. They're definitely the most dramatic feature on the Babarusa. And... What they are generically, because Chris and I will definitely talk more in depth about the tusks, but in general, it's the upper canines of the male that basically don't even enter the mouth cavity, but grow up uh, vertically towards the top of the snout and then curve backwards, basically into the forehead. And then the Barbarossa also has lower canines that grow upward as well, but they're not as dramatic. They're big, but they're not, they don't go into the forehead. And the really cool thing about these canines slash tusks in the Barbarossa uh, that are in the male is that they're the only mammal with vertically growing canine teeth. And 
they get long. So they can be anywhere from 30 centimeters plus, which is anywhere from 8 to 12 inches or about the size of a banana when full grown. So it's super fascinating. And the females don't have the upper tusks. They will have the lower tusks, uh, but not as dramatic. So really just distinct. Uh, Once you see one, you'll have to either go on our show notes or do a Google image because they're, it's just, they're really fascinating and they're much different than warthogs, which Chris and I covered a while ago, which of course do have these tusks, but not so dramatic and not up and not going up through their nasal passage, basically into their own head. <laughs> that's for oh, sure. It's crazy. It's so crazy looking. It, it's, that's why it's like, there, this, there's so many interesting facts about this species. Yeah. We're going to bust some myths too about these, um, about these tusks because there's been a lot of thoughts on why they are and what they do. Um, do they hang from these tusks with yeah. trees? Yeah. Uh, even John asked me, he's like, well, you have to be careful because like they can grow into their heads. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about, is that really, does that really true. happen? Is that yeah. true? What, what, what does the research show us? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it'll, it's definitely gonna be fun when we get to the tusks, but very, very, no, and they look like they're, they look like elephant tusks, you know, once they're grown, like out and curving. So yeah, it's really going to be a lot of fun talking about those when we get there it, and the size of, of a Barbarossa, you know, they're going to vary by species, but up, you know, their, their body length up to 40 inches or 110 centimeters. And then their tails like another ten to twelve inches, so they're not. Yeah, it's massive. not. It's not curly. They don't have a curly yeah. tail. They have a, yeah, like a yeah. nice straight, uh, yeah. medium sized length tail. Yeah, so they're not massive pigs. They're not huge, but you know, not tiny at height at the shoulder up to thirty one inches. So you know, getting upwards close to three feet or eighty centimeters. But they can weigh up to two hundred over two hundred pounds or hundred kilograms. Yeah, they're not a small pig. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're not little tiny things. They're they're, they're pretty big. Now, where they live, Angie's already said that Indonesia on these islands, you know, there is four main islands that they find them. Sulawesi, which just last week or the week before when we talked about new species, uh, they did, I remember they discovered a, a couple there. I first thought it was in Africa somewhere, but it's actually Indonesia. Then Sula, Buru, and then Togian or Togian, uh, the, the four islands that they they find uh the Barbarossa, and nowhere else on Earth. That's where they're at. Right. That's just such a unique creature living in a very special habitat on these islands. So a lot to celebrate today. Yeah. And they, you know, and and they're not deep forest living, you know, reading that they prefer in more open forests, but they want to be near rivers and lakes and and near water where they can root around, I guess. Um, So... Uh, but really in the swamps in the rainforest of this part of the world, but not dense, dense forest like you would think uh, some other pigs. Now, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the conservation today. I mean, around IUCN has them around 5,000 individuals left in the world. But there's a lot of reasons why to care about this particular species. There's some really interesting stuff, right? Oh, absolutely, Chris. And then even to expand on that is because they've now declared these three or four different distinct species, the numbers are even less. Like the Toygen one, there's only about a thousand of. So when you really break it down into different different types of Barbarossas, 
They just need a lot of our attention from a population standpoint uh, to care about them and to fight for them and to make sure they have their natural habitat. But from an ecosystem point of view, being members of the pig family, they are omnivores and they do a lot of rooting around. And so if you think about it, when they are digging around, they do a great job mixing and aerating the soil for all the different plant species that grow um, in the Indonesia tropical rainforest there. And from a human or economic perspective, the Barbarossa is very important symbolically and culturally to a lot of the Indonesian natives. Uh, they were historically hunted for food for a long time. Uh, they were sometimes even captured and tamed as well. And now it is illegal to hunt them because their numbers are so well. And we're going to, we're going to highlight a lot of what Indonesia is doing to help protect the Barbarossa because they do treasure them uh, as, as their native wild pig. And they're so important to them. So they don't hunt them anymore, but there is some still illegal poaching, which is keeping their numbers down and not, uh, they're not rebounding the way that they should be, even though they are in protected, uh, well-established forests for the most part. And then, Chris, what was really interesting from a biomedical point of view, Barbarossas are thought to have some medical secrets mm-hmm. that researchers really want to tap into because this upper tusk or canine uh, goes up to the top of the skull, uh, like where the nasal bone would be. It's really the only what they call percutaneous or passing through the skin via puncture of a canine that is in the animal kingdom. And so the researchers want to know about the epidermis lining the uh, lining this area where the canine comes through, basically like the top of the head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and because of medical devices such as catheters and other things that are implanted into humans and they don't typically do well within the epidermis, they can reject them or become irritated. And so researchers just want to know, how do they do that? And I think it's really curious and potentially if they could unlock the secrets of how the Barbarossa's upper canine uh, does poke through the skull and into the skin in such a nice organized fashion that uh, it could be potentially helpful to new medical devices. I read that and then something in my brain went, okay, very, very cool. Like, wow. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But they said it was the only animal that did this. And I am going back to an episode of that we did of another I know. Species. Your scientist brain is the same <laughs> as mine. And whenever, whenever anybody says like really dramatic language of like the only or the best or the biggest, uh-huh. I'm always like, I need to see the data on that. Yeah, 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 <laughs> or is yeah, that yeah. really the only one? Because I was thinking about Narwhal. Yep. And because uh, I feel like their canine, the... the goes through right yeah it looks like it does it goes through the front of their mouth that was episode 64 i mean we did that a long time ago but such an amazing amazing whale that is a if you have not heard that episode go back uh narwhal what they use that for you know the whole science behind that yeah so i thought that but then i thought okay well maybe this is the only species they could really study it in because studying it with a narwhal is probably near impossible. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. And well, maybe it has something to do too with the material of the tusk. We'll talk a lot about that. The The tusk of the Barbarossa is a little bit more brittle, or maybe it's the location of how it goes through uh, the skin or where, because it is so much more uh, ventral 
And I will say this is definitely a skull that I not only looked up, but I put like three or four screenshots of Barbarossa skulls uh, compared to warthog skulls. I did not do a narwhal skull. See, I got to do that on my slides to just understand the morphology a little bit better. And I'm not a skull expert by any any stretch of the imagination. But to really get a visual on how they differ, and it's just it's just really fascinating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot a lot to learn from the species, you know. And again, there's only five thousand left on these four islands, uh, you know. And then the ones that we do have uh, in emergency reserve around zoos around the world that are out saving them. I t- totally went left field this week, Angie, and. <laughs> I'm sitting here. We, we've done. Into, we, we've covered a lot of Southeast Asia lately, and we've talked a lot about palm oil and a lot of the things the animals are are facing. So I thought this would be a good week to kind of talk about science a little bit different, because looking at the Barbarossa and their skulls got me thinking about like dinosaurs. And right now in the movie theaters, when we're recording this, Jurassic World's out, so. It's all in everybody's mind, you know, dinosaurs again and the fossils. So I just wanted to go down this rabbit hole and I just talk about how do fossils become fossils? Like, I what do they tell us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's the one I haven't gone down before on this podcast. And I, I remember years ago, I, I took an online course for free on, on dinosaurs just because I was curious. I love learning. You and your rocking Saturday nights. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is pre uh, All Creatures podcast. <laughs> but, but I remember watching this, like how did fossils become fossils? And it's it's very, very interesting. So I'm going to go through it quickly because with evolution, fossils are telling us a lot, right? It gives us a lot of our natural history. So it's always a, a weekly topic. Now I started off like, okay, body decomposition. You know, how long does does it take for a body to to decompose? Uh, When an animal dies, you know, what happens? So basically, uh, really quickly, before anything can become a fossil, you get this decomposition where three hours post-mortem, you get rigor mortis. That's where all the muscles stiffen. Within, you know, one to three days, the internal organs decompose the cells because the cells are dead. So the cells start to liquefy. This is where the uh, the dead animal or whatever begins to, to smell really bad. Uh, but within five days, bodily fluids are leaking. I don't know if I have to go through all of this, but 10 days, it's liquefying, right? Everything's decomposing bacteria. Yeah, I got a good visual. You're doing okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, then about a month post-mortem, most bodies are just like sludge, right? But the skeleton is left behind, right? Because that takes the longest to decompose. Now, obviously that's going to vary, you know, with the, where you are in Florida, it's hot, humid, lots of bacteria. That's going to happen quickly. If you go into some of the dry deserts, it's going to take a lot longer. Now, bones last quite a while. Interestingly, in soil, okay, this is not fossilization. These are just bones, in acidic soil, bones can completely dissolve within 20 years of like a large animal. So if we took an elephant, buried them in acidic soil, within about 20 years, those bones will be gone. You'll never know what was there. In neutral pH soil, skeletons can last for hundreds of years. 
they can skeletons can last quite a while uh buried but not indefinitely right not like a fossil so that's completely different of fossils that's finding bones in the soil uh you know even i know we've we've found mammoth bones and and things uh in pits uh, that are thousands of years old so bones take quite a while out in the environment but they will eventually get crushed decompose whatever fossils are completely different they're not actual bone so when we go see fossils of a dinosaur that's not bone that's minerals that had filled where the bones were so there's there's different processes of fossilization over time the most common method of fossilization is called per per oh gosh permineralization or petrification so after all the tissue decays after a few months right it becomes that goo that goes away all the soft stuff is is gone the bones left behind but the water or the minerals surrounding the bone so that's usually like they, they get covered up or whatever dissolve the bone and replace it with minerals so you have this imprint of the bones that's what is left behind with the fossil so it's it's per mineralization so when i I go and you look i remember sue the dinosaur came through florida that's in chicago i know Um, i'm gonna try to take the boys this summer yeah pretty excited yeah like she is one of the most complete uh, t-rex skeletons in existence and those bones you're looking at aren't actual dinosaur bones it's actual minerals left that seeped in and took over the bone now there's there's some other there's carbonization um that's a different type of fossilization this is way more complex than i'm making it but i did go and read a bunch of this stuff because i thought it was so cool one that i think is really cool too that we leave behind is molds or casts so dinosaur imprints in soils we've uncovered those sure footprints and stuff right yeah yeah and, and i remember colorado a few years ago when i was there near red rocks uh, there's a, a dinosaur walk and they actually have dinosaur imprints because uh, Colorado, like, you know, they're coming up out of the soil. And so what that is, is, is the imprint in the soil minerals come in and fill it behind and leaves a mold. So you have this mold of this animal that once walked there. So then Angie, where all this comes with, with Jurassic world, where, where I kind of ran down a rabbit hole again was the premise of Michael Crichton's book is they go in, they have a mosquito trapped in resin that mm-hmm. had fed on a dinosaur. They drill into the resin and suck out the blood or the dino DNA from the mosquito that's trapped in the resin. All right. So that's the premise. Can that be done? What do you think? Well, you need, you don't, you need more than blood. Well, what's in blood? I mean, DNA. Yeah, is the DNA going to be preserved in that blood over millions of years? No, no, not at all, not at all. Because DNA, what do you know? Well, you didn't do a lot of DNA. You were you were doing all the chemical stuff. You were doing all the the crazy molecules. Yeah, I was doing and- like yeah, one I guess one step bigger than the nucleotides of DNA. But I mean. I would, yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna break down over time. DNA is very fragile, very Mm -hmm. fragile, right? So, DNA is, is 
is not going to preserve well over millions of years. It's not. It's just, it's, it's, uh, the, especially with fossilization. Even trapped in amber. <laughs> even trapped in amber during that heating process, dehydration process. The scientists say there's no way DNA can survive that. Because what they did find, I don't know if you saw this, is in trapped in resin, they found dinosaur feathers about 99 million years ago. And I remember that made the news a few years back, trapped in resin. Then what they found were ticks in there. So 99 million year old ticks that were engorged with blood. And they thought, oh, could we go in there and get DNA out of them? But no, you can't because DNA does not preserve well. So the only other thing I found very, very interesting, and this is this was controversial, but science. this is why I love science is now we're finding remnants of organic material in these fossils. And they're like, how in the heck is that even possible? Because logic would dictate organic material gets digested by bacteria, disappears. But there was a scientist uh, about 15 years ago, she released a paper. She found dinosaur proteins. I think it was a duck not duck-billed platypus, the duck-billed dinosaur. What was it? The, the, what? <laughs> Put you on the spot oh, again. My kids are going to be so disappointed, Chris. I'm disappointed in my own self. Hydrosaurs, Chris. I think hydrosaurs. I, I think that's what it was. I read the I read the paper. I think it was. It was it was a duck. It was a duck. The duck-billed one. Mm-hmm. But she found these proteins in fossils, and people are like, "Okay, no, your lab was contaminated. There's no way. There has to be another reason." Yeah. No, they independent laboratories have gone in and done it, and yes, there's actually they're finding biological material that is trapped in these fossils, and what they think happens is the iron and the protein becomes cross-linked, so the bacteria- Yeah, they bind together, yeah. Yeah, so the the bacteria can't digest it, so it remains behind. Interesting. So I'll leave that door open. Even though we can't get DNA from a mosquito trapped in resin, we are finding proteins of dinosaurs- in fossils, so we never know what we're going to be able to do in the next 50 to 100 years if Jurassic World can be possible or not. <laughs> I don't think in my lifetime, but and maybe in someone else's lifetime that's young listening to this podcast, maybe there'll be some sort of dinosaur hybrid clone genetically engineered running around at, at some somewhere. That would be so fascinating. As much as I would love that. I'm still like, let's save the species we have, like exactly. Barbarossa. <laughs> yes, the Barbarossa. Okay, so anyways, that was a totally I loved tangent, it. No. but it just seeing their skulls made me think of fossils. Last question, Ooh. because here's some trivia. What's my batting average right now? I, I think I'm doing medium tonight. You're doing good on this podcast. Okay. okay, you're doing good on this podcast. I asked Pip this, and she guessed somewhat right, because I was laughing. I'm like, no way. I'm like... There's no way because I was laughing. I'm like, you're wrong. Just to make sure she she would um, just stick to her guns. And she did. She did. I asked her, and I'm going to ask you, how old do you think the oldest known fossil is in the world? Hmm. Okay. I am going to guess 200 million years. Nope. Over or under? Over. I'm over. Okay, I thought that was no under, 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 under. Oh, I'm sorry. under. Sorry. Oh, way. then um, four hundred million. Yeah, under. 
I mean, think about it. Like we we have like ancient fossils, you know, from ocean going creatures. Oh, like a billion? That's what Pip said. And I, I laughed. I said, no, there's no way. How do you have a fossil that's a billion years old, right? How old's the earth, roughly? I think like a couple billion. Yeah, four billion, right? Like four point mm-hmm. four billion or something. I don't know. We're not earth scientists. We're we're out of our lanes right now. Clearly, but. <laughs> if this is a fir- if like if somebody just turned this podcast on and they're and then it, they're like somehow skipped like this section, they'd be like, turn it off. <laughs> no, we're not dinosaur. Po- we're uh, just having fun tonight, folks. Well, we're just talking science. That's what uh, we're kind of. Com- we're talking about science that we don't really know about. So science communication. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> This will blow you away. The oldest known fossils that they have found is cyanobacteria from Australia. Dates back 3.5 billion years. 3.5 billion years. The Earth's only been around four, four and a half billion years. How is that even possible? I I know. I was like, whoa, how... I mean, I guess I am trapped of thinking like, I guess I am in the loop of thinking that a fossil has to be a bone and blah, 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 blah. Right. But I exactly. guess Exactly. This, this is why like I'm bringing it full circle. Mm-hmm. Full circle. This is science. This is why it's so awesome. This is why science is so awesome. 3.5 billion years old. And the oldest known rocks on earth are only 3.8 billion years old. So in the very, very, very early, early oceans, you had single cell bacteria or organisms living, and they have actually fossilized. I went in and read a paper. I'm like, okay, Angie's going to ask me how. And I was way out of my lane. It basically, <laughs> to, to sum it all up, the paper was early cyanobacteria fossil record, preservation, paleo environments, and identification. And this was published 20 years ago in the European Journal of that whatever field that studies this and basically the the gist of it was among the tools are radiometric age determination analyses of fossil organic compounds and stable isotopes microbial paleontology and molecular phylogeny phylogeny uh, molecular phylogeny so that's the paper that did this i thought it was fascinating Uh, it, it, it just Science is awesome, but basically the whole reason I brought that up today was when we do talk about evolution and we talk about these fossils being found, there's, you know, we have one now that's 3.8 billion years old and moving forward, we're able to somewhat chart the evolution of life, right? So that's why I get excited about evolution and thinking of all these crazy things because the Barbarossa to me looks ancient. It looks like something that survived 20 million years ago, not in 2022. It does. It really does when you think of a lot of the um, mammals that went extinct during the last big, um, what was it, extinction event? The well, the fifth, that was that was the dinosaurs. But oh, then we had what, kind of what, what about the like end of the climate change. The yeah, we, they call it, It's not. it wasn't a mass extinction, but it was a, a lot of megafauna went extinct with, the end of the ice age and the end of the yeah. I feel period. like they should be in there with like giant armadillos and like bear sloths. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they've been around for a while, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah, leading into their evolution. You know, again, it's just it's fascinating. Barbarossa mammals. Uh, the order is Artiodactyla, 
So one of Angie's favorites. That's right. Even-toed ungulates. Yeah. And we have 270 land-based even-toed ungulates. So the pigs, the peccaries, which I'm going to talk about here in a second, the hippos, antelope, deer, cattle, goats, sheep. Then, I always ask you this, and then who belongs to this order that you were like, what? Dolphins. Yes, and whales and... 90 species of porpoise and whales and dolphins also are part of Artiodactyla. It's so crazy. Hippos, the I closest Hippos. relative to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the family is Sudae. So, this is the 17 species of pigs. So, we'll revisit these again. There's the Visayan warty pig. There's a bunch of warty pigs of Philippine. They all belong to the genus Sus pigs. Uh, that's where the j- domestic pigs came from. Wild boars. So maybe wild boars would be a good one to do. Oh, that'd be a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. Suscruffa. Uh, wild boars. That's where domestic pigs come in. So they had that genus. Then you had the pygmy hogs, great forest hogs, red river hogs. I know you've mentioned before. Oh, I'd love to do that. Yes. My friends worked with them at the zoo and, we, yeah. we, and we've been able to go see them behind the scenes at uh, the Animal Kingdom Lodge and really, really cool scent training stuff that they're doing with operant conditioning. Mm, nice. Pigs nice. are just so smart. Yeah, they are. They are. They are. And then the warthogs, which we covered episode 145, and then the babarusas and the four species. Now, the four species, Angie mentioned a little bit of these. You had the the hairy or the golden barbarusa. Uh, the the proposed species is Bola Batu barbarusa. Then the one that Angie said, the, the Sulawesi barbarusa. So the North Sulawesi one, and then the Togian Barbarusa. So the, those are the four species of of them. And then just quickly, their evolution. Distant relative emerged about 35 million years ago. This is this was interesting because I I didn't think about it, but I would have thought peccaries were a pig were a pig species, but they're not. Me too. Okay. Yeah, they're not. They're not. So th- there's another one we can add to our list. They're they're not part of the family. Uh, but that's when the peccaries kind of, they're pig-like, but that's when they branched out 35 million years ago. So very successful group of animals, uh, mammals, you know, colonized Africa, Eurasia, radiated out, did not radiate out into the Americas. That's where the peccaries and uh, those other species live. So uh, we'll, we'll cover them at some point. Now, Barbarossa's not a lot's known. There just isn't. Again, you you could imagine because... Finding fossils in this region of the world is probably rare if you can find anything. Uh, they, they do find skeletons and stuff of them, but tracing their evolutionary history to this group of islands has been pretty tough. But what we do know or what we seem to know is about 14 million years ago is when Barbarossa's branched out on their own. And, and then the other pig species... Uh, like the wild boars and all of them took really another 10 million years till you really started to see them break out. So like the sus, all the sus ones, the say warty pigs, the wild boars, uh, they didn't emerge till about three or 4 million years ago. So Barbarossa in this family is the oldest species. Now, my favorite fun fact that I found this whole podcast, even though we've got a lot of amazing stuff to talk about still. And this one, <laughs> I'm just going to go and say it. The oldest known painting by a human, Angie, dates back 35,000 years. Can you guess what it's a painting of? 
A Barbarossa. Yes, a Barbarossa. That's why I brought it up. <laughs> That's so cool. 35,000 years ago, they found this this painting in a cave of a Barbarossa. Where, where? What cave? It was found in Sulawesi, Indonesia. So I we got to go there. That just sounds like a cool place to visit. Just uh, so that's where the Barbarossa, the oldest human painting, is of this pig. Fun. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. Moving on, Ange. Just a couple facts where we get to Tuss. Uh, I did read, uh, you know, on average, ten to twelve years in the wild, but they can live up to twenty-four years under human care. Yeah, or twenty-four. I read. Yeah. So a while yeah. under human yeah. care. Yeah, and they just, you know, I, I know a lot of their behavior would be fun to talk about. Very intelligent, uh, very much like other pigs. But these tusks is just where it's at, right? Chris, these tusks are incredible. They're the things that myths and legends are made out of, literally. So much enchantment and even folklore about them. And there's several several thoughts that have been lurking around. And, and even my husband, John, uh, was uh, potentially spreading false rumors when he was, he said, <laughs> he's like, he's like, oh, you know, I've heard that those tusks can uh, grow into their head because it should be noted that um, the tusks do continuously grow. Mm-hmm. So now they're usually worn down um, from rooting around and doing some of these plowing behaviors into the mud, which we'll talk about, or rubbing their face against trees and things like that. Uh, so it's it's not you know it's not a big issue, but I had to look into it. Like, is this actually possible? Mm-hmm. Another popular story, but uh, definitely not true, is that a Barbarossa will use its tusks to hang from a tree to wait until a female Barbarossa comes trotting by. They do not do that. <laughs> That's so crazy. <laughs> They're 200 pounds. And also we'll talk a little bit about their tusks. The actual anatomy of their tusks yeah. is that they, they're brittle. They're not yeah. as strong as like an ivory elephant tusk right. or something you might think of. And so they're not even really, uh, really used for anything that takes strength. Mm-hmm. And so of course that leads into the fact that are these tusks used for fighting uh, with males during male-to-male combat to score a female or during territory disputes. And so researchers kind of looked into that. Uh, other thoughts were that these tusks were used to help make their nests. We'll learn in behavior that they're very cute. They like to, to make nests at nighttime or a female will make a really lovely nest before she has her uh, piglets. So what is going on? Why do they have them? Is it for offense and defense? Uh, what research has shown is that number one, it's totally a mystery. So mm-hmm. that's the the cliff notes. <laughs> there you go. But there was a hypothesis that uh, perhaps it was used for defense, like for males to fight each other, defend each other, defend territory, score female. But it's just not really reasonable for two reasons is because when male Barbarossas are kind of battling each other, they don't hook tusks. Um, in fact, the tusks don't really touch that often. They actually stand up and box, which uh, we'll have to put some photos on our show notes. It's amazing. They, it's amazing. Yeah, they're they're on their hind legs, and their forelimbs are kind of wrapped around each other, and they're just pushing on each other. And so it doesn't really have too much to do with their tusks, like when you think of perhaps another um, another animal that uh, would use their tusks in a battle. So, and the other thing is that these tusks are a little bit brittle, uh, and they're not as they're not made as hard 
uh, as like a walrus tusks per se. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they really can't withstand like major blows. That's, that's not what they evolved to do. Uh, like a lot of other male species that have tusks. So they can't really withstand much pressure. They don't really use them in battle because if they did, they would actually break. Uh, so, so what's going on here? And so the hypothesis that researchers have thrown out there about Barbarossa tusks and why they evolved the way they did um, is somewhat twofold at this point. They think that the way the tusks curve kind of over into their face might actually protect their face and eyes during a battle uh, with another male. But, you know, that's a really hard one to prove. Uh, The other one is it might be for sexual display. Like think of peak male peacock feathers just got bigger and brighter and bolder with no apparent function, except for that females like the bigger, bolder colored male peacocks Mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. those feathers. And so it might be something like that as far as uh, these big tusks signify genetic fitness to the females as far as who she should want to breed with. So they don't really know. It's uh, still a mystery. And... To kind of go back full circle to the original myth that I said John and I were talking mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. as do these tusks actually grow into their forehead? And for the most part, the answer is no. Uh, there was a researcher, a zoologist out there that went and looked at like something like 250 skulls that he could find in all the different museums everywhere. And there was like one or two cases of it happening. And so he surmised that it's very rare. It's not something that would normally ever happen. Uh, And so it's not necessarily like a problem for Barbarossa's in general, just because they do wear them down. It's not very likely to happen, but it has been documented at least once or twice uh, that we know of. Yeah. 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 I saw that. I saw one of the the photos of one that had grown. Yeah. So John was half right. I'll have to give him a (laughs) point for that. Yeah. (laughs) Partial credit. Partial Partial credit. credit. Partial credit. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, like the warthog, like they use those in defense, right? If I remember right. I mean, it's it's been so many episodes ago. So they, they're more, I'm trying to get as, is, there's really no functional purpose of the tusks that we know of currently, right? No, and but it is fascinating. I mean, like I said, the Barbarossa tusk does grow throughout their entire life. And so to be noted that the skull where that did happen, and they think it was a really old male. Yeah. Because it's only if they like live really, really long that that would even be possible. But there's also um, a blood supply to the uh, to the tusk of the Barbarossa which is a lot similar to like our fingernails or our hair. So it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, it is, it's just, it is. They are one of the most unique looking land mammals. Again, archaic. Well, and Chris, I do have to point out that uh, there is the record uh, for the Sulawesi Barbarossa to have a tusk that reached 17 inches. Dang. Dang. That's a lot. It's a radical. It's usually about yeah. eight, maybe 12. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty pretty uh, fascinating. Yeah, they are. They are. They are. All right, before we run off to behavior, because there's mm-hmm. it's that boxing stuff, so so cool. Uh, what we do know that, like other pigs, pig species, omnivores eat almost anything. You know, 
they they berries and leaves and insects and fish, I mean, fish mushrooms, ish. nuts, berries, even, even small smaller bar- bear barbarusas. <laughs> like ah, <laughs> but they don't root around, right? Like the, the, the they don't root around a lot. Like other yeah, pigs. this is where they differ um, from our domestic pigs or some of the other species of pigs. Is they do? I mean, they they will eat insects, obviously, mm, yeah. and so they do in and tubers and stuff. But uh, it's not the roots of trees and tubers and things like that are not a huge part of their diet, and so the rooting behavior is less. And yeah. the other thing too is they don't use their snout to root around as mm-hmm. much. They actually use their hooves as more of a digging behavior to get the insects and larvae up off the ground. Yeah. Yeah, that, and I thought a couple of the fun things is they they can get on their two back feet to reach leaves higher up in the trees, kind of like you know deer, I guess some some sure. deer species. Or, or, well, or the jerinook, another jerinook. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought of. I exactly it's where my my head went. That's a fun them. one. Yeah, we'll have yeah. to cover that soon. Yeah, and then you know, talking about you know because remember they 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 split off fifteen million years ago. Their stomachs are different than other pigs yes uh the nutrition dork in me and of course in you as well is always okay monogastric monogastric mm-hmm. horses humans pigs mm-hmm. we can always make those talking points when we're trying to like get grants across uh but yes the barbarossa is not a monogastric mm-hmm. meaning one not stomach really uh yeah. yeah they're not really a true ruminant species either mm-hmm. with the four chamber stomach it was it's more of like a two chamber yeah yeah and they thought they might have been ruminants, but nah, they don't know. There's no evidence yet that they do ruminate any of that food. So I think there's still, you know, obviously research is limited with only 5,000 pigs of them left on the on earth. So, you know, what is the purpose of that two-chambered stomach? We, I don't think we know. Oh, all you budding nutritionists out there. That's a fun one. That'd be a great <laughs> yes. one to study. Yep. Well, Chris, another cool fact I found out about Barbarossa nutrition is they have been known to uh, crack hard nuts, so they're capable of adding mm. that to their diet as well. But then this leads to this question about coconuts. Uh, because of where the Barbarusas live um, on these islands, the Barbarusas will sometimes come in contact to like basically uh, commercial coconut farms. And so they can be considered like a nuisance uh, with the farmers. And... Uh, what I do love about science is some awesome researchers just recently um, reported in the Japanese uh, Journal of Zoo Wildlife Medicine in uh, 2020 that they actually wanted to look at this and see, is are they really a nuisance? Can they even really eat coconuts or important parts of, of young coconuts like the seedlings or the leaflets uh, and other parts that would be bad if they ate that because mm-hmm. that's how they're replanting and growing and stuff like that. And so the researchers looked at um, barbarusas under human care and then also barbarusas out in the wild to see which pieces of coconut that they are able to eat. Can they eat the whole darn thing? And what they found out is no, uh, that basically the bar- the only parts of coconuts eaten by barbarusa in the experiment was little broken kernels um, of the shell mm-hmm. and, and other pieces that were scattered about. And so the pieces that the Barbarossa did forage on has zero economic value for a farmer. Right. And so therefore, the Barbarossa shouldn't really be seen as a pest or anything that the farmers need to, quote unquote, get rid of or out of their plantations or 
have this conflict with. So I just really appreciated looking at this scientifically um, to see if this is the case. Because yes, uh, I know here, even in uh, Florida where I live, we have wild pigs that Mm -hmm. are domesticated, but they now live in the wild and they do great. And they really can do a lot of damage to crops and pastures and stuff like that because they uh, do a lot of digging and eat a lot of uh, tubers and trees, roots and shoots and stuff like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, But this is not the case at all with the Barbarossa. And uh, so, yeah, I really appreciate this study. And I like that people are out there doing the hard work to help prove their innocence. Well, science, you know, when you said the research project showed that they don't. So that's why, again, you know, why we're such big proponents on funding research, conservation research, because now you can go and tell those farmers, well, they're not, they're not destroying your livelihood, right? So don't poach them or don't drive, you know, uh, don't kill them, right? Protect Mm -hmm. them. Yep. Yep. That's good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, I couldn't find anything on predators. I mean, they, they said most of these islands are pretty much predator proof, right? They're definitely predator proof uh, for the Barbarossa, except for humans and human conflict. And, uh, and we'll talk about reproduction, their generation interval. It's kind of slow. They don't produce a lot of piglets per litter each year. Uh, So they're not going to rebound the way that, for instance, the wild pigs have in Florida, uh, they're, they're re- they really are struggling. And so uh, we need to keep a close eye on them. Yep, 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 yep. All right. Well, behavior. What are some fun things? I mean, pigs are always fun. That, oh, now, that's a species I would argue you want to do research on with behavior because it's so fascinating. They're so busy. Pigs are so fun. And even when we were at Disney this past weekend, uh, I just could have watched the Barbarossa just do his thing around his big exhibit uh, all day because they're just uh, they're just pretty active. Now, when it comes to Barbarossas in the wild, they're very shy uh, and they do dwell on the forest or the edge of the forest. And so we actually don't know a ton about their daily habits. Uh, in fact, I was reading about this one researcher who studied them 20 or 30 years ago in, uh, from Oxford. And hearing how they had to travel and how long it took for them to actually find wild Barbarossa and uh, how remote it was. And then when they did find them, that like one little noise, the, the, um, the Barbarossas would just go running. So in the wild, there's still a lot we don't know. Um, Barbarossas do do well under human care for the most part. And so a lot of what we know is from them living in zoos. Uh, but what it, what what appears to be congruent in both the wild and in zoos is that they're probably mostly diurnal, so they're active during the day and they sleep at night, and they're going to spend a lot of their day roaming around and foraging through the forests and looking for anything and everything to eat, as Chris mentioned, from fish to to plants to nuts to berries to insects to larvae to other Barbarossas. Um, <laughs> so we can skip that one. <laughs> but when they're not foraging, they're going to probably be found resting, lying in the mud. That's probably why like they, they want to be on the banks of rivers uh, to beat the heat of the day, right? To cool off. Uh, and they'll just kind of lay around and rest. They're great runners. Uh, they've got those deer-like legs. They can't run that fast, but they definitely are good runners. And they're even amazing swimmers. Now we know that normal domestic pigs can swim, 
But I found a video of a Barbarossa swimming at White Oak, uh, the conservation center here in Florida, where we get to, where I get to help participate in some animal behavior stuff. But there's a video and it's so awesome. I'll just send it to you. This uh, Barbarossa, the keeper's calling the Barbarossa across this river that's running through their big, amazing field that they're in because they basically like live in the woods there uh, with all the tens of thousands of acres that they have. Anyways, the pig comes across this river. It's probably about, I don't know, 20 feet maybe across. Mm -hmm. And it swims underwater. Like it oh, dives wow. down. Wow. And then you don't see it till it's across the river. And then it pops up and comes out of the river. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. So I was, it was, I mean, like a mermaid, you know? Yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah, what yeah. are we doing yeah. here? But it yeah. makes sense because we, I don't know if we, evolution, they think that some of the different species or subspecies mm. got to the different islands potentially by swimming, right? Yeah, Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they're definitely great swimmers and it was really fun to watch that. And so I guess they can even like catch fish while they're swimming. I don't know, but they're, our <laughs> bruises are incredible. Yeah. Uh, and then similar to you and I, they do like to be comfortable when they sleep. And so they'll usually uh, make a nest um, when they, uh, as they go to bed for the evening and they'll use all sorts of leaf litter, grasses, straw if they're under human care, uh, dried grasses to make this nice nest, uh, to help them, help them be comfortable in the evening, which I just, I, I love that. And so of course, me being the dork that I am, I found this like whole paper that was recently studied in 2019, once again, about nest building behavior of uh, Barbarossas. And so the researchers were trying to answer this question of, we know they build nests, but what do they build it out of? How often do they rebuild it? Uh, do males and females build similarly sized nests? And and what the results showed is that both males and females do build nests um, and that a young Barbarossa will start helping build nests um, by the time they're about 15 weeks old. <laughs> if my kids are listening, yeah, right. <laughs> can, you are more than 15 beds. weeks old, so <laughs> you could help make prepare your, your room for bedtime. Make <laughs> yeah. your gosh darn bed, right? Uh, um, it's the same everywhere. Do, I know, right? My goodness. Uh, and so the Barbarossa do have specific nesting sites that they like. Um, and of course, this was under human care, but they gave them all different types of material to construct nests out of, and they loved, and they preferred plant materials when available, but they would use even sticks and other things. And so the researchers were basically encouraging um, zookeepers that take care of Barbarossas to give them lots of different materials as enrichment that they can build their nests with. And um, if there is a large group of them, like females that are cooperative that sometimes they'll build a nest together, which is super cute and charming. Uh, so yeah, just, it's a really important behavior for them and they like their sleep and they like to be comfortable. And another reason why I love Barbarossa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, they're fun. They're fun. They're a lot of fun. And, and just thinking about watching them and, and studying them. So what do we know about like their, their social interactions and sociality? Sure, Chris. Well, once again, it's it's hard to study them in the wild. Uh, the researcher that want, made a huge, huge push towards saving the Barbarossa 20, 30 years, years ago and helping work with the Indonesians to put in uh, national parks and preserves uh, for the Barbarossa in Sulawesi 
f- did was able to observe groups of Barbarusas together at assault licks. Uh, and they identified anywhere from like, you know, 20 to 40, sometimes up to 80 individuals. Uh, but they were typically all females. And usually, if anything, just like sub, like juvenile, juvenile males. So what the thought is, is that males are typically solitary or might live in bachelor herds of two or three, uh, while, while females can be found in groups, um, usually anywhere from five to 10 with, with young. But uh, depending on the seasonality, they will come together in these big, large communal groups at, um, in the rainforest to, to wallow and utilize natural salt licks. So the salt brings them all together and yes. makes them, it <laughs> makes them, them super happy. And gossip. And so, yeah. And of course, males and females will be seen interacting during uh, breeding season, but typically males are, are going to be solitary. Yeah. 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 It got me thinking why they meet and, and the gossip, like I was joking, they're gossiping, but that was making me think like, what are some of their vocalizations? I mean, how do they communicate? Yeah, I mean, like other pigs, they are quite vocal. They do have lots of things to say. They'll moan and grunt. um, And grunt is similar to like the oink, right, that we teach our little kids uh, noise. And they also do this really cool behavior that when they're excited, they clatter their teeth. So I need to get a hold of some of my zookeeper friends that have worked with Barbarousas and be like, send me videos of their teeth clattering. I just love that. Because there's lots of reports of Barbarusas basically showing excitement and enthusiasm and gr- even greeting familiar people in their lives. They may wag their tails. They shake <laughs> They shake their heads and That's jump awesome. and run about. I mean, yeah. yeah, really like personal behaviors. And then you have this teeth clattering thing, which is just super darling. So I need to find some videos of those and post those on social media because that would just make my heart so happy to see mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I love that. Uh, and I, I got to work with domestic pigs and uh, they don't do as much like running and jumping because they're domestic pigs. So they're very large <laughs> in size. But the mama pigs that I worked with were very personable, liked being around us and enjoyed their enrichment and were super smart uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, I mean, I really enjoyed them. And I think I prepping for this podcast, looking into uh, pig intelligence and cognition on a little bit more of a um, scientific note, which is one of my one of my favorite areas of expertise, uh, more on horses and other equids, but man, I mean, pigs are super smart, right? They like are. They, are. they are. Um, some say they're the fifth most intelligent animal in the world. Uh, there's talk out there and uh, cognitive studies that they're more intelligent than our dogs, which we all know we just keep learning more and more and more about how intelligent dogs are. So yeah, pigs can, I mean, they have excellent memory. They excel in like cognitive based game playing things. So once again, that's a different pod for a different day. I I mean, I really, I really think that we should focus on that just animal intelligence in general, but I think that pigs are often underrated or not as well studied. And I think sometimes, uh, pig intelligence is not always talked about or celebrated as much maybe because they are, a source of protein, of course, for uh, many Americans and people in other countries. 
but it is, it is something we should really dive deeper into. But there's been other studies of young contagiousness in species such as, of course, humans, but chimpanzees and some of the, the higher primates, uh, gorillas, bonobos. And then in non-primate species, it's been observed and studied in animals that have a lot of social cohesion. So wolves, for example, um, some groups of elephant seals, and then it's been found in one species of bird uh, called the budgerier. I'm saying that wrong. Budger. It's like a little cute Australian parakeet, super gregarious, um, and it's green with like a yellow head. So those species it's been recorded in, but researchers took a uh, took it upon themselves to look at it and in. Um, domestic pigs and found that it is present. And the researchers suggest that the fact that the pig can see the other pig yawn and then they're more likely to yawn is a sign of really hierarchical social and emotional communication or cognition. And so for me personally, it just makes me relate even more with pigs and want to understand more of what they're thinking and how they think and how they perceive the world and that they are really thinking, feeling, uh, social, highly social, uh, complex social, emotional, uh, creatures with a lot of cognitive abilities that we're still learning about. Um, so yeah, really, really cool. That's always fun. The behavior, the, and I know the animal behavior is in you is just like, Oh, you wish you could do you need more hours in the day, right? We need more hours in the day to, to study this stuff. And oh yeah. To learn. It's yeah. Just, yeah. Just giving them a voice and it's just so eye opening. So I know that they're smart or they have this cognition, but it's, it's awesome when you can really see researchers quantify it um, and give them the limelight that they deserve. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Now, one thing you talk about reproduction and maintaining these populations, you know, what do we know? Well, there's definitely a few reports of some of their interesting and unique behaviors when it comes to reproduction. Uh, Barbarossas do this really cool behavior called plowing. And what the male Barbarossa does during this plowing behavior is if they have soft sand or dirt, they kneel down and then they push their heads in a forward direction, kind of like a plow, if you will. And they create this really deep furrow. And when they're plowing, they're growling and snorting and producing a ton of saliva. And the saliva is like really extra foamy. And so males will do this even more vigorously if they are in another enclosure with another male. So it's thought that this plowing behavior is some sort of scent marking territorial function, uh, but we don't really know. It, it is it is unique. It's not something seen in domestic pigs. Um, and it hasn't been, to my knowledge, I don't know if it's been seen in the wild. It probably has, but more so studied um, under human care. And they just think with this, this, this large amount of saliva that they're probably leaving some type of scent trail behind. And the thought is the scent trail is then communicating to the other male whatever it needs to communicate. Either this is my territory or uh, this is my female. So yeah, still a lot of unknowns with Barbarossa and their reproductive and courtship behavior. But what we do know is Barbarossas typically breed from January to August, depending on which island there are, which species they are. And before they breed, there's 
typically fights between rival males. And one researcher describes the male breeding behaviors as roving, roving dominance hierarchy. So they're going to basically move around and try to be the dominant pig and breed with whatever females that they can that are in heat. And when they are fighting with other males, once again, they don't really use their tusks, but instead they engage more in this like boxing behavior a lot of times where they rear up on their hind legs and they face one another and they just lean and paddle their forefeet. <laughs> like, I just had a vision of my, my two little boys like when they're like pushing at, you know, like with their, yep, their hands, yep. like pushing at each other, but not, <laughs> yes. they're not yep. really old enough to actually box or do any, do any damage yet. Give them yeah. some years. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, I'm going to start calling, start calling them babarusas, but, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, so, but they're doing this and they're stretching their heads up to, it's just a, it's, um, we'll have to see if we can find some, uh, videos. I saw some still shots. Yeah. I'll I put did those too, on, yeah. our, put those on our, our show notes, but yeah, so they'll do this boxing behavior and, uh, the more dominant pig will be the one that can breed the female. And what the research has shown in females that we do know for barbarusas is that they're, their estrous cycle length can be anywhere between 28 and 42 days. Once again, probably depending on what species they are and where they live or if they're under human care. But the actual estrus or accepting the males to breed them will only last for a couple days. And so if you are in the wild um, forests and you know jungles of Indonesia, you got to make sure you can find each other, right? So it seems like a short window to just be an estrus. When a female does become pregnant, her gestation period is going to be about 150 to 157 days. And here's the real kicker. And I'm not, I don't really remember where warthogs and, um, or like the warty pigs fall, but the female Barbarossa is only going to have one to two young or piglets Hmm. per birth. Where if you think, yeah, I mean, think of like a domestic pig, it can be like, 12, 16, yeah, a lot. Yeah, even yeah, yeah, yeah. 10, yeah. 10 is normal. So completely different one to two per breeding season per year. So, I mean, that's just really a low number, especially for a pig. Um, and the piglets can weigh anywhere for, from 400 to a thousand grams at birth. Um, and they're definitely more precocial which means they're advanced, right? They're ready to rock and roll right when they're born. Um, but they're born more precocial than other um, other pig family members are. And so they're ready to eat solid foods after three to 10 days. Um, they probably start leaving the nest uh, at about 10 days, but they stick with mom and they're not going to actually be weaned until about six to eight months. So it's a pretty big parental investment uh, if you think about the amount of time that the female is lactating and producing milk for them. So when we talk about conservation and helping these populations grow that are either threatened or endangered, as with the Togan, Toygan, uh species of Barbarossa, you know, it's, it's going to take some time and uh, it's not going to be easy to repopulate them. No. No, I mean, yeah, it, you see the numbers anywhere from five to 10,000, you know, IUCN has them at 5,000. I've seen t- up to 10,000 uh, left in the wild, but their numbers are decreasing, you know, so, you know, that's part of the world being well, developed, well, deforestation, well, it, all of it. 
Well, yeah, Chris, and they're decreasing, even though Indonesia is doing a pretty great job of conserving them. And um, Sulawesi has large protected areas uh, that these conservationists have fought really hard to help um, get into place. And it's not, you know, it's not legal to hunt them. And one of the articles I was reading, um, researchers were saying that a solution is probably to make more habitat corridors. So they have these reserves um, on the islands, but they're not connected. So it would, and it's going to be a little tough to make these corridors because you have, there's a lot of people that live in the areas. And so it takes a lot of coordination for the people that live around the reserves. But it is something that probably is going to need to be done or look at, or at least looked at to help some of the populations rebound. Well, it's, it's, Interesting that you brought you bring that up because Indonesia is doing a lot, and you know, I, I, I it's like when we were talking about the Sumatran rhino a few podcasts ago. Some of these other species we're talking about, these governments in this part of the world are taking action. It's just it's not you know Europe coming in saying oh do this do that. It 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 is like we always say conservation is local, right? It's always local, but it does take a village. And so this week's group that I wanted to highlight is Action Indonesia. What it is, is it, it's a conglomerate of conservation and organizations and zoos from around the world helping to save Barbarusas and other species uh, in this area that we're talking about. So just really quickly, like their mission is, or who they are, is we are the Action Indonesia Global Species Species management plan. So, uh, excuse me, it's more than 50 organizations across Europe, Asia, Indonesia, America, and Canada, all working together to save some of Indonesia's unique species. So they are working on saving the Barbarossa, the Anoa, and the Bantang. I think these are some other ones you wanted to talk about, right? Yes. I don't know if you just saw my face light up on the camera. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Anoa, the midget buffalo. Yes, yes please. Oh <laughs> okay. my gosh. I've been dying. All right. We will get to them. We will get to them soon. I'll have to add that to the list. But there, there are a, a group coming together and actually coming up in August 14th of this year is Action Indonesia Day. So they're going to be raising an awareness on these three species and shining a light on them and talk about conservation. So they are on the ground. They are working with locals. They are working with the governments to save these animals and the Barbarossa specifically. They are helping do, to do not only cooperative breeding, uh, you know, breeding in zoos, but looking at uh, rescue, rehabilitation, and release. So something that we talked about last week, Angie, was you were talking about reintroduction science. Yes. So all of these experts around the world are coming together to work and save these species. So it's it just when you find this stuff, and I love highlighting these groups because there are a bunch of people out there working hard to save all of these animals that we're talking yes. about. Let's send them some money. This is awesome. Yes. Share this podcast with your friends. Uh, the more listens we get, the more Patreons we get, just the more we help educate our village and get them excited about Barbarusas, about the Indonesian wildlife, uh, the more we can help donate money to the people that are out there, boots on the ground, doing a great job. 
Yep, yep. And you can follow you can find them on the website at Action Indonesia GSMP.org. And I'll always on our website or in our show notes, uh, you can find links to these organizations. So again, that's Action Indonesia gsmp.org you can follow them uh, it's a beautiful website they talk about everything they're doing all of their projects on the ground and how they are helping the people of indonesia save these animals so so tip yeah. my hat to you yeah and they're yeah. also on uh, facebook as well yeah so yeah check them out check them out and just final tip conservation tip of the week go to a museum show your children fossils talk about science Talk about fossils. Talk about these animals. Get your young and your young ones enthralled with science. Again, the 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 green generation. I think Xander's the one that called him that a couple of years ago in a podcast. You said, "Oh, we're the green or the green generation." Uh, but with them up and coming, getting them excited, I love to see it. In my own boys, you know, even when we go out and birding or we're walking, I'm like, "Oh, what bird is that?" And it's, "Oh, it's." It, Waka Waka or New Zealand Fantail or get get your kids in museums, get them outside looking at wildlife uh, because they're our future. But thank you so much for listening. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.